welcome to Mouthwash TBD Conference's podcast with me, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TBD Conference and founder of Emerging Technology Advisory, Hereforth. My guest today is Phil Leibin, co-founder and CEO of All Turtles, a mission-driven product studio and mm-hmm, a new app that makes video calls and communication not just clear, but compelling and fun. Previously, he was Managing Director at General Catalyst, and before that, he was co-founder and CEO of Evernote, which he grew to become a beloved product for hundreds of millions of users. He's incredibly honest and open, and our chat took us everywhere from Silicon Valley to inner space. Enjoy the show. Phil moved to the US at eight from Leningrad in the USSR before leaving his university course to set up his first startup. Fast forward about a decade and Phil became CEO of what I consider to be one of my secrets of success, Evernote, a note capture app used by around 225 million people globally. Um, numbers vary. Um, Phil ran that company until 2015, stepped down, and then he started to do lots of other things. Previously, he was involved in um, startups to do with identity management, amongst other areas. Um, Phil is considered widely Silicon Valley royalty. Um, but his latest chapter sees um, him as CEO of an AI startup studio, All Turtles, where he and the team makes products first, companies later. And I do love that um, as an ethos. Um, all to do with practical AI. One of his um, tools at the moment, or products rather, uh, that I use regularly is called Mm-hmm. I'm very honoured to say that we had him on the virtual TBD stage this year, having chat um, with a very high um uh, power journalist as well. He got he got a good grilling, but it was a fun chat. Uh, I'm really honoured to have him on season one of Mouthwash. Um, Phil, welcome to the show. How did Tuesday treat you so far? Paul, thanks for uh, having me on. Uh, yeah, my first Twitter Spaces thing. So, so oh, far, so good. excellent, excellent. Was my intro good? <laughs> uh, was, I, I don't think anyone actually considers me Silicon Valley royalty, but other than that, you nailed it. Ah, no, I meant sorry for Twitter Spaces. Do, do you understand what Twitter Spaces is? <laughs> No, but I've I've given up trying to understand what anything on on the internet is a long time ago. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go with the flow. Go with the exactly. Go with the flow. What what could go wrong? It's only live audio. Come on. Um, right. Well, this should be fun. Mouthwash isn't just me chatting with Phil though. I want to hear your questions. Use the hashtag Mouthwash Show, and I'll do my best to get them in. And who knows, Phil may even go through the rest at his leisure and answer you directly. We don't mess about here at Mouthwash. We let people do what they want. Um, right. Okay. Doke. Where to begin? Let's start with what was the first thing you thought of when you woke up this morning. Oh, you know, same uh, all the time, which is, uh, you know, did I meet the, did I beat the alarm clock and by how many minutes? And, you know, should I, should I go back to sleep? Is it going to go off in 30 seconds? It's, it's the, it's the perpetual every morning thing. Oh, okay. So you never, you never wake up with the alarm. It's always before. It's usually right before, because I think it's some kind of a cruel practical joke that I play on myself. It really is. It really is. Um, Okay. There's been a pandemic on. I'm not sure if you've been aware. How the last 12 months been for you? uh it's been very uh what's the what's the the popular word these days consequential it's been a it's been a consequential year uh you know we we started a bunch of stuff uh and i think like professionally things are great and Mm -hmm. better than ever which is which is weird it's a weird feeling um that when you know the, the the rest of the world has uh kind of massive challenges and uh you know most people that i know at least professionally are are or having their best year ever. Yeah. Um, it's odd. It's like it's an odd thing. But I do feel like we are living through uh, a really a transformative time. I think the world is changing more over the past 12 months than uh, it had any other time in my life. And whenever massive change like this happens, there's always an opportunity to you know try to make things better than, uh, than they were before. 
Definitely. I want to come on to that a little bit later. But tell me a bit about your early years. What do you consider uh, to have shaped you to be the person that you are today? Because you've, you've had a lot of ups, you've had a lot of downs and that sort of thing. I think you're back on the up, if that makes sense. But um, yeah, what, what sort of shapes you? Uh uh, man, I don't, I don't, I guess I don't think of myself as, as having been shaped. Uh, you know, I've tried to uh, avoid being bored. Um, I guess that's, that's kind of the, the, the singular drive is I realized uh, pretty early that uh, I just don't like being bored and, and, and try to do everything possible to, to excise boredom uh, from my life and so not do things that, you know, that I don't want to do not hang out with people that I don't want to hang out with. And, uh, you know, I've been, I've managed to do that to, to, a, to a lesser or greater degree of success. Um, but I think that's kind of animated a bunch of stuff is just, just trying not to be bored. But then all of this changed uh, a few months ago uh, during, uh, during Biden's uh, inauguration. I remember, uh, you know, watching some of the inauguration festivities in January and being like, oh my God, this is so boring. This is like the best feeling ever. I never like, understood <laughs> I never understood the luxury of, uh, of being bored before. So maybe now, maybe now I need to like change my life again and kind of seek out opportunities for boredom. No, definitely. It did feel like the whole world breathed out when that happened and nothing went, went bad or anything like that. It's, um, it's definitely uh, one, of those, um, one of those collective moments, I think, that we all felt and that sort of thing. Um, thinking back to your successes and sort of future ones, obviously we can't sort of pontificate on, but what do you think your big success in life has been so far? Uh, look, I think I've, I've managed to, uh, get a bunch of really talented people to let me like continue, you know, hanging around with them and, 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 and building cool stuff. Uh, and I think everything has come from, you know, just, just having an amazing group of friends and coworkers and being lucky enough to, uh, you know, work with some of them for, for decades and, uh, you know, and others, uh, much more recently and kind of keeping, keeping, keeping in, in each other's orbits. Mm. Um, I think that's been I think that's been the main thing, and I've, I mean I've tried to be mindful about that. What do you think attracts people most to you? Uh, well, uh, I think it's it's you know I am I am I think I am attracted to uh, you know to, to people that are that are high impact people that have a, that have a, a lot of substance, and I think uh, you know people like that see the the enthusiasm, uh, right? They see that that like I I want to do meaningful stuff with people that also want to do it right so there's just kind of this mutual feedback cycle like it mm. was uh, like a good way to i think i remember um early days of evernote um i really loved japan like i love going to japan i've been to japan a few times before evernote uh and just you know was looking for any reason to go to japan and uh, one day we were sitting around in the early days of evernote and we sort of kind of invented i don't actually know if this was real but we basically decided that oh look there's an uptick of usage of evernote in japan maybe there was maybe there wasn't we didn't look that carefully but it was like the excuse we needed to like hop on a plane head over to you know head over to tokyo and just start you know hanging out in japan and and, and meeting with people and so we met with a bunch of like bloggers and productivity people and life hacking people and we were just super psyched to be there like i loved being in japan i was happy that i actually got to be there for you know quote unquote business we got some great food, uh, some great drinks, and it's a feedback cycle, right? Like I am the 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 people there, the bloggers, the, the the business people, the engineers, like they're, you know, they're excited that we came over from Silicon Valley to like hang out, and they see how excited we are to be there, and then they get excited that we're excited, and then we get more excited because they're excited that we're excited, and you know, it's a positive feedback loop. So, I think a lot of life is just uh, being being aware of uh, positive and negative feedback loops and trying to trying to surf them correctly. Is that what you think 
uh, running Evernote taught you the most or is it something else? Um, I mean, it's so like so many, so many lessons. Uh, at Evernote, it felt like Evernote was my third company uh, mm-hmm. at that point. I, you know, we'd started two, two things before that. And uh, both of the previous companies, I think you mentioned one was in the sort of security identity management space. The other one was one of the first you know, e-commerce companies. Um, and what they both had in common is we were building things for for other people, for other customers, you know, and mm-hmm. so we would wake up at, we would wake up in the morning, you know, at that point, the, my first thought was always like, well, what does the customer want? What does the customer want? What does the customer want? And uh, I just got really sick of that. Uh, we kind of said after we sold the second company, we don't care what the customer wants anymore. We're just tired of that. We want to, mm-hmm. how about we ask, like, what do we want? What if we make something that that's for ourselves where we're the customers? You know, can we, can we go much faster? And so that was like finding the cheat code. To, to, to startups is like make something for, for us. And it went ridiculously faster. And we kind of learned that, yeah, that is a very fast way to, to, to do things and to grow, but it's also a fast way to make a lot of mistakes, uh, which, you know, accumulate and come back to bite you later. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so at Evernote was my first experience, like with the power of making things for, for me, for us, and, you know, doing that iterating really quickly. And then afterwards, uh, at all turtles, a bunch of the other stuff that I invested in and worked on, we really try to take a broader approach to say, well, let's not let's not solve our own problems because there's lots of other people in the world who are much more deserving of having the problem solved than, than us. So can we build things for, for other people? So we kind of went back to asking what does the customer want? And then with mm-hmm, since it started out literally as a joke, we never intended to make it a serious you know company or product. It started out as a joke during the pandemic, and the joke was, you know on us and by us, we sort of fell back into the cheat code of making things for us again. And now I'm remembering, oh yeah, that's, that's what this is like. That's, this is what it feels like to go super fast and to build a product that we know the product we want to make. And, but now hopefully we get to avoid some of the pitfalls that that caused uh, at the Evernote days. Mm. Uh, great segue. Um, mm-hmm, latest company. For those who don't know, what is mm-hmm? uh, It's a way to be less boring on video. Uh, basically, you know, we found ourselves all sitting on video um, after we started working uh, from home. So we started working on them in May. Uh, so we actually, we're coming up on our one-year anniversary. It'll be May twenty seventh. Oh, it's only been a year, cracky. I know it's been it's been fast. Uh, uh, well, it's been both like like time has no meaning. Like in some sense, it feels like it's been like ten years, and other other ways, it feels like it started yesterday. Um, mm. And, you know, we just, I just kind of thought everything on video was ineffectual. It was, you know, it was boring. It was, uh, it was uh, dreadful. For the first couple of months of the pandemic, it, it wasn't boring because it was terrifying. It's like we were all just really scared, I think, in the beginning. Uh, but then, you know, after like six, eight weeks, like the, the day-to-day terror kind of subsided and what was left was just the tedium. So we just started goofing around um, just as a way to make people smile a little bit in our endless Zoom meetings, and it, it, it grew up from there. So it's a, it's a way to present and, uh, and do video on wherever you do video that just makes you show up better. Mm. Phil, you're underselling it there. I remember when I first downloaded it on the beta, uh, and it just felt like it was a revelation at a time when you rightly say that everyone had zoom overload and that sort of stuff but the the capabilities of the even back then what the product was was streets ahead of anything else so most people would be excited by a different background you guys were doing animated backgrounds as sort of standard and you would then be able to make yourself in the smaller left-hand quadrant and that sort of thing so it felt like you were sort of part of a show and that you your presenting skills were just streets ahead of others even though it was mainly down to the tool and 
that sort of stuff. Obviously, the person's still got to be able to string sentences together in that. But um, yeah, I, I really did like the sort of functionality of it. And it's just so different to what it is now. So um, yeah, I, I, I'm a big fan. Um, Thank you. It really does change, I think, how people engage with content and sort of lean forward. Um, you mentioned the idea sort of came about through, you know, solving problems for yourself. Do you think that's something that works for you or more companies should be thinking in that way? Uh, I think both more and, and, and fewer uh, should be thinking in that way. I think like, I think it's okay to do this uh, if you're intentional about it and kind of know mm -hmm. why you're doing it and, and, and doing it on, person, uh, on purpose. I think, you know, a lot of, especially Silicon Valley startups solve their own problems because they can't get out of their own heads. Like they can't think beyond themselves. And so yeah. it's just a lot of stuff that doesn't apply to the vast majority of the world. And that's kind of lame. Uh, but there's a, you know, like solving your own problems is a particular very, it's a particular tool mm -hmm. that you can wield uh, very effectively as long as you know the, you know, the limitations. Um, you know, I kind of figure it takes, you know, it takes 10,000, let's say, iterations to make a really great product. Um, and, you know, at, at, at my previous, before Evernote, I was running a security company called Core Street, and we were selling things to big banks and governments. And, you know, each iteration, like each product iteration was like 18 months because, you know, you had to like build some stuff and then sell it to like a giant bank consortium or something and then wait a year to get feedback. 18 months every iteration. So you got to get through 10,000 of those. If it's going to take 18 months each, you're like, you're in for 15,000 years yeah. before you have a really great product. And like, hey, it's too long. Didn't, didn't have that kind of time. But, you know, at Evernote and at now, mm -hmm, iteration cycles are like 20 minutes, like literally, like you can make a change and then be like, well, this made it worse. <laughs> let's let's <laughs> get rid of that change or that, that made it better. So if you can iterate every 20 minutes versus every, you know, 18 months, you can, you can get through your 10,000 iterations within, you know, a few years. I should do that math one of these days, uh, but yeah, it, within a few years. And then uh, you can really have a really great product. And I think we're like, we're, we're on, a, we're, we're, you know, we're off to a good start. We haven't gotten through the 10,000 iterations yet, but like we're getting to the point where I feel like it's a really good product and it's, mm -hmm. it's about to take a massive jump forward. So we're, we're going to be announcing some stuff around our, around our one year anniversary. That's like pretty mind bending. Oh, well, that leads me nicely. You've, you've recently had a, a massive injection of investment um, recently, and that's the thing. What are the plans for post-pandemic? <laughs> if you can go into any detail whatsoever after that last comment. <laughs> we, had a, we had a completely you know, modest and appropriate injection of capital. <laughs> Love that. It's <laughs> exactly the right amount. Um, yeah. We'll, Actually, before we go on, just a question on that. Do you think most startups ask for too much money? Do you think they're forced into asking for too much money? Or is, do you think that's a, an unfair statement? I don't know. I honestly don't know anyone who's like taken too much money from high quality investors and regretted it. Like that's never happened in the history of the universe. Mm. I know plenty of people, like every other permutation of that happens all the time. I know plenty of people who regret taking too little money mm. from high quality investors. I know plenty of people who regret, you know, taking too much money from shitty investors. Uh, I don't know anyone who regrets taking too much money from, from high quality investors. So like, that is a hypothetical danger, but I don't think it's ever happened in the history of the universe. So I'm not, I was not worried about it. I don't think that's why, you know, most startups fail. Although Roloff, uh, Roloff bought at Sequoia as our main investor, was at Evernote and is now again at, at mm -hmm. He talks about it as, uh, you know, a lot of Silicon Valley companies are more likely to die of indigestion than starvation. Hmm. which I think is kind of a similar point where like you're when, you know, when you do have access to capital, you're much more likely to make a different class of mistakes when you, and you wind up, you wind up dying from indigestion. You've done, you've done too much. You've been defocused, all that kind of stuff. And that's, you know, in, in some parts of the world, like around Silicon Valley, that is a more, more likely cause of death than you ran out of 
cash because you couldn't get capital. Obviously, in the vast majority of the world, that's that's not the case. You're much more likely to die of starvation and indigestion as a company. Mm. So I won't let you get off the hook. What are the plans for post-pandemic? Mm-hmm. What can you what can you tell us? Oh, I mean, we're, it's it's changing the world. Um, look, I think uh, right now we're making this transition where. For the past year, 14 months, like most of us have been on video because we had to be, right? we were forced mm-hmm. to be. And, uh, and now, you know, in the next couple of months, we won't have to be anymore. And so we're going to go from doing it because we have to be, because we have to do it, to doing it because we want to. So now we're like learning all of the things that we, by we, I don't just mean, I mean like the world invented during the pandemic and which parts of those are actually like really effective and beautiful and delightful and worth keeping. And obviously a lot of stuff isn't. A lot of stuff isn't worth keeping. Like, I'm probably going to stop cutting my own hair at some point. Okay? <laughs> you know, I've been cutting my own hair for 14 months, probably nearing the end of that cycle. I'm probably going to go back to, you know, a barber. But there's other stuff that I've, like, figured out uh, that we've, like, made that it's actually, like, works really well. We're going to not only keep doing those, we're going to grow them. And so making this transition from doing something because we were forced to do it and having no agency in it to to Picking and choosing the stuff we want to do, you know, doing doing in person the stuff that's best in person and doing on video the stuff that's best on video and mixing and matching those things and like recombining reality is an amazing set of superpowers mm. that I think a lot of us are going to be uh, kind of going through. And it's going to feel so radically different, like doing something when you have agency because it's your choice. This couldn't be further from doing it because you're forced to do it. Sure, there's no hints on what else is coming from. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, like it's it's well, it's everything we have. Plus, I really think the main theme, and I've I've talked about this, you know, publicly. Uh, their main, um, the main superpower that you can get by combining uh, uh, online experiences with live experiences is you can you can basically bend time, right? You can hybridize. You can say stuff. There are some stuff things that are better done synchronously. Like this conversation, because mm-hmm. we're riffing off each other, we're bouncing around, but we're doing this one synchronously, but online, right? There's other experiences that are best done synchronously and in person, like, you know, eating mostly, yeah, other things like that. And then there's other experiences that are best done asynchronously and online. And in the before times, you know, before the pandemic, just about every important thing in life existed in only one of these quadrants because everything was like forced together. So like, you know, if you, if you went to college, almost the entirety of the experience was live, like synchronous and in person. Mm. Uh, if you're, you know, going to a doctor, it was pretty much always, you know, live and in person. But what if you imagined, you know, a healthcare journey or an education journey that combined some things you do totally time shifted asynchronously at your own speed from wherever you are other stuff you do synchronously, but online and other stuff you do in person. And you can like combine these things freely. You can literally improve just about every important thing in life. You just need the tools to do it. And that, that's what we're building. It's yeah. like, we, we think that we are tinkering, like what started out as a joke 11 months ago, we're kind of tinkering with like the f- essential fabric of reality at this point. And, oh, you know. I definitely think there are some. Uh, you create some meetings in Zoom headquarters. That's that's for sure. When you uh, when you dropped out, um, isn't the only brand underneath uh, the All Turtles umbrella though? Uh, you've got Telus, which is to do with elder care, Vitality, which is about health, um, Carrots, um, focusing in on uh, fertility, and you've got Disco, which um, really interests me because it was about corporate values. Can you tell us a bit more about Disco? Um, this focuses on an area I think is becoming more critical for a number of companies and startups. I think. 
Well, first thing is like, you just gave me an idea, which I don't know why I hadn't thought about this before, but we clearly need to make all turtles umbrellas. Like, oh. it's, it's just, it's, it's obviously a thing. We're always thinking about like, what kind of swag to make. I don't know why we never considered all turtles umbrellas. It's obviously needs to happen. Love it. If Love any of fun. our designers are, are, are listening in, just don't, don't wait for the meeting. Let's just get to, let's get to <laughs> making some all turtles umbrellas. You had a hip uh, first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. I mean, what we do at all turtles is we, we basically say, I mean, you said it, it's, it's, it's product first company second, if it deserves a company. Um, the idea is that, uh, the Silicon Valley startup VC treadmill really fetishizes startups to, to no one's benefit other than, you know, the, the, the general partners at VC funds, certainly not to the founder benefits or to the investor benefits or anything like that. Um, because think about it, like in, in, in any other high, like in any other high achieving area of life, like let, let's imagine that you're like, let's say you are one of the world's most naturally talented, like brilliant Mozart level musicians. You're like a one in a million, like brilliant you know, musician mm-hmm. alive right now. You don't need to like make a music company. You just play. And, you know, the platforms already exist, like YouTube and Facebook and whatever, like you're going to reach a billion people. And if you're like one of the one in a million most talented writers in the world, you don't have to like start a publishing company. You just write. And if you're, you know, an amazingly brilliant, you know, filmmaker, you don't have to like make your own, you know, film studio. You go and make, you know, zombie shows on Netflix. Because like, that's what you do if you're mm. just like amazingly brilliant people. But if you are uh, a um, one, you know, one in a million Mozart level brilliant like product thinker, you have to make a fragile little startup first before you can like make your product. Like what, how does that make any sense? Why do we mm. tell people who are, you know, allegedly or in many cases actually brilliant kind of product designers like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. great, great, great. Look, here's a four and an A page on how to make a startup, get a board of directors. Here's where a four and an A valuation is. Here's, you know, like, here's how you have to hire people. Here's how you have to fire people. Here's the 10,000 mistakes that you're going to make. Really boring ass mistakes that everyone makes mm. uh, because we force you to make a, this brittle, fragile little thing called a startup. The vast majority of them fail for reasons that have nothing to do with the idea they're trying to test because they don't even get to do a fair test of the idea because they screwed up the really difficult part of making a startup. Why do we do that? Like, serious question. It's because that's how. VC funds are set up. Mm. Um, so what we try to do is to say, there's nothing wrong with startups. There's just nothing right about them either. Like we're not fetishizing startups. We're fetishizing the product, the creators, the founders. We want to have like a system that feels more like Netflix where really brilliant people can come together. We can make stuff together. We do everything as a unified team. And uh, once we know that there's a good product market fit, if you want to make a company out of it, make a company like we did with mm-hmm. and, you know, we'll raise more money and it'll be like, a, it'll be a startup. And if not, then, then it doesn't have to be, but like, don't, don't worry about the startup until you've got the product. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that works great. And so all of our ideas are kind of in this vein of things that we think the world would be a better place if they succeeded. Disco is a great example of, yeah, something that does, uh, you know, employee recognition and values, uh, but yeah, everything everything else that you mentioned kind of fits into that mold. Uh, our first product was Spot. It's a an AI for workplace uh, for preventing workplace harassment and discrimination. There's like lots of lots of products. Uh, some of them, you know, kind of crazy and whimsical. Like mm-hmm. some of them, you know, much more serious. But all of them have in common this idea that there's like brilliant founders and a real problem. Mm-hmm. 
That leads me nicely actually onto a question I wanted to ask you. Um, so the recent base camp for Raw, uh, they hit the news recently for some interesting choices that the co-founders, Jason Freed, um, David Heinemann, Hassan, uh, kicked several own goals, I think, quite publicly about their new philosophy. Um, so stuff like no more societal and political discussions on the base camp account, paternalistic benefits are gone, no more committees, no lingering on past decisions, no more 360 degree reviews, uh, not forgetting what base camp is does. That kind of agrees with what you said, like focus on your mission, keep it sort of focused and that sort of stuff. But at the same time, it feels like they've made so many own goals. They've since lost um, a third of their employees, I think it is now. Um, what would be your advice for them or any other companies who find themselves in similar situations? Well, I think maybe they got into part of this predicament by being a little bit too too free with the advice that they've given the world. So, um, you know, I don't want to, I want to play into that game. Like, uh, mm. you know, part of it, right, is like this the, the the reputation, the image they have of like, you know, lots of lots of advice, lots of books about you know how you should manage your startup. So, there's a certain amount of, uh, you know, there's a certain amount I think of satisfaction that people are taking from from seeing this happen, particularly to Basecamp, which is you know maybe justified, maybe not, but. But kind of regardless, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't presume to give them advice. You know, I think um, our philosophy um, at All Turtles. I mean, we have you know several, but the key one, uh, and this really came from my from my co-founder uh, Jessica, uh, who's now the CEO of, of of Spot, one of our one of our first spinouts. Mm. Uh, but Jessica's uh, uh, put it as a uh, strong opinion is loosely held, which I think is a really kind of elegant way to think about it. So we need to have very strong opinions about everything about well not everything but like the stuff that we you know the stuff that we do we have strong opinions about uh here this is the right way to have a meeting this is the right way to do updates this is the right way to structure our internal you know communication like strong opinions loosely held which means mm -hmm. like we don't we don't we don't we don't clutch them we don't obsess about them and and we're totally willing to let go of them and to change your to change our strong opinions you know when it makes sense to change them in fact we we need to celebrate that we need to celebrate the moments we were like well we used to think that this, we used to have a strong opinion that this was the right thing, but now we've changed our mind and now that's the right thing. Because otherwise you get into this, like you, you, things become way too, you know, I think brittle. So, you know, I think it's fine for Basecamp and anyone else to experiment with different things. Um, you know, at some point, pretty much everything you do is going to be wrong in some direction. You just have to like acknowledge that and optimize for you know, respecting the people who are on the team and giving each other the freedom to, to change your mind about stuff. Yeah, I, th I think that's the key, isn't it? It's like with all the backlash that you've mentioned and, you know, it's kind of like what happens next, I think is the most more important than what you've sort of done, if that makes sense in that sort of scenario. You mentioned the word experiment there, which I think is um, an interesting one for the period that we're all working into next. Um, you have been distributed for a while now, worker-wise, is that right? Yeah, yeah, since yeah. March, I guess, yeah. Yeah. Uh, talk to me about distributed workforces. Um, what do you think is the sort of next phase as we sort of go in? You know, there's lots of uh, people in sort of patriarchal businesses who are like, nope, back to the office. That works for me. And then other people are like, no, we can ride this for a bit longer. You know, that's the thing. Where do you, where do you think we're going to net out? Well, again, I don't know. I don't know about we. Uh, sorry, I don't know about like everyone in the world. I know we're, I know what we're going to do, which is mm. we're never going back to an office. It's ridiculous for us to do it. So we, we made a commitment to be fully distributed um, and we've tried to be intentional about it. Um, for example, we're not remote. We don't believe in like remote work, like no, like remote, I think remote is a strong connotation of like, if there's a bunch of people in an office, but you're not, then like you're remote, you're at a disadvantage. Uh, if, if everyone's distributed, no one's remote. Um, and 
if you're doing the kind of work, if the company is able to be distributed, I think that uh, a bunch of stuff is more difficult. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not even that interesting to think about the difficulties. Like it's a little bit interesting and you got to like problem solve. What's really interesting though, is to think about not like what's more difficult when you're a distributor, but what are the superpowers? Like what can you do as a distributed company that are ridiculous superpowers that you will never give up? Now that you've seen them, now that you've tasted them, you are never going to give these up and it's worth fighting for. So you're not like being distributed again because you have to be like, we were all distributed because we had to be, but now we don't have to be. If we wanted to go back to an office, we can go back to an office, but now we're going to choose to be distributed and keep the aspects of distributed culture that we want because like they're worth fighting for because we have these new superpowers. And then, you know, some things will, will change. Mm. And I think it's just very common human nature to really focus on, on the negative, to really focus on the problem versus like leaning into the amazing new superpowers. So for example, you know, we've kind of said there's like at least three like world changing superpowers that we're never going to give up in our company. If other people want to give it up, go for it. You know, one is that 0% of our team, waste time commuting yeah zero percent of our team members like spent an average of two hours a day commuting like that's massive why would i ever give that up why would i ever force people to pay such a giant tax like imagine imagine if it always been that way right imagine if like somehow you know harry potter magic something something like no one in the company ever commuted you know for like the past decade and then like all of a sudden i gather everyone around and i was like hey everyone like gather around all hands i have a new idea I'm going to need each of you to waste two hours every day sitting in traffic. And like, yes, it's not productive because you can't really work. And yes, you're not spending time with your friends or your family. And yes, it's super stressful. And yes, it's terrible for the environment. But, you know, we're, I'm just going to go ahead and ask everyone to do that two hours every day. Right. Like yeah. what, what, right. I would be fired immediately. CEOs lost it. But like, that's kind of what we're asking people to do. We just never thought about it that way. So like just that, just no commuting. Uh, is worth fighting for. Yeah. And then and, and that's like the least of the superpowers. Other stuff gets even like it, it it only gets more epic from there. So we just try to be like very thoughtful about when we're gonna stay distributed, why? What are the massive advantages that we're never gonna give up? 80% of attention goes on that and then 20% goes on to okay, well, but then how how do we handle the yes buts? The oh but it, but this is harder. Okay, how are we going to mitigate that? But that's harder. Okay, so how are we going to mitigate that? Because we know what we know why we're doing it because we know it's worth fighting for. Mm. And is that your advice for people who are listening, who maybe run larger or smaller companies and that sort of thing? Ask the yes, but people to sort of explain themselves a bit more, or is it something different? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm hesitant to, to dispense advice. <laughs> you know, it's, it's. I think uh, I can. The way that we think about it um, is, uh, uh, I, I think most people have a strong negativity bias. Right? We've seen it all over the world. Mm-hmm. And especially the world that we've made by we, I mean, like us technologists, we're, we're kind of at fault for this. We've really made the negativity bias worse. We've built entire industries whose purpose is to, you know, basically make people feel bad because that's what gets, you know, cheap clicks. So mm-hmm. like, in a lot of ways, like, like the negativity bias is getting stronger and stronger than ever. And uh, the counter to that is, well, what if you force yourself to actually just think about the, the upside? And, 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 don't, and don't combine those two things. Don't combine like the downside thinking with the upside thinking, thinking that you're gonna reach some kind of an equilibrium or a balance, you're not. Because like the portion of your brain that has the fight or flight reaction, the, por- the portion of your brain, you know, the amygdala response that's thinking about negative stuff is like 
far like older and more powerful than the, than the relatively new human portion of your brain that's thinking about like the upside, like your lizard brain is stronger. So whenever you're trying to say like, like, okay, here's a problem, here's a problem, here's a problem, here's a problem, here's a problem. Oh, but this is an opportunity. Here's a problem, here's a problem, here's a problem, here's a problem. Like you're not thinking about the opportunities, you're thinking about the problems, you're indexing them. But if you take those things totally separate and you say, what are the amazing life-changing opportunities that I never want to give up because they're good for me, they're good for my team, they're good for the world, you know, then you can kind of frame things in a much more positive way. And, and then in that view, it's obvious that like my companies are never going to come back to the office because why would we? Right. Like I, I, um, uh, I'm in Arkansas right now. So I moved from San Francisco to Arkansas just cause I, you know, I wanted like a low stress place to just kind of hide out and wait to get vaccinated. Finally got my second dose a few days ago. Uh, and then I kind of figure out where I want to be, but I'm in this, like, you know, it's a beautiful place. Um, I'm in this like little farmhouse, uh, you know, it's got a nice yard. It's a good neighborhood. Like, it's just nice. It's just nice here. And, um, I don't know, you know, I, 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 we just rented this like fully furnished, you know, Airbnb type place. Uh, and I think if we're going to buy this house, I don't know, I think it's like 250 grand, which is like a 10th, a 12th of what it would have cost in San Francisco, literally like a 12th, um, which is interesting, right? Because what does that mean? It means that every single employee at any of our companies, everyone on our team can afford every single one can afford to live in a really nice place in a good school district in a safe neighborhood with beautiful nature. If they want to, they can afford to do it right now. Yeah. They don't have to wait for 20 years. They don't have to save up. They don't have to wait to retire to have a good life. They can have the good life right now. And it doesn't put them at a disadvantage with their career. They don't have to make that trade-off. Mm -hmm. So the motto that we've come up with for this, for distributed work is uh, you should work where you have the best job, live where you have the best life. Like yeah. for the first time in the history of the universe, there's a few hundred million people globally that can now make those decisions apart from each other. Like they don't have to combine where they live with where the job is. I've never had that opportunity before. My entire life where I lived was entirely a function of where the job was. Mm -hmm. Now I can, I can choose them independently. Where's my best life? Where's my best job? And not just me, but literally every person in my company and literally most people in my industry, if that's how it's set up correctly, why would I ever give that up? I think that's the issue, isn't it? It's not set up like that for a lot of people. And I, I kind of see a lot of stories emerging and decisions being made that sort of, you know, the, the power is saying, no, we're coming back to the office. What do you want? 10 days and that sort of stuff. What do you, what do you think when it, um, uh, when we're talking about the money sort of side of it, um, where companies are changing salaries when people move out from big cities? Is that fair, unfair? Uh, you know, I, again, above my pay grade for fair or unfair, I think what it is is probably stupid. Um, so we're not doing it. Uh, basically, you know, where how much you make should should depend should be based on your contribution to the company, not where you live. Uh, so we we don't like. I didn't feel like giving myself a pay cut when I moved from San Francisco to Arkansas. I'm certainly <laughs> not going to ask anyone else to take a pay cut. So yeah, like we're not we're going to pay people the same. Uh, regardless of where they are. Initially, we're doing this. Well, right now we're already doing this in the U.S. and Canada. So we basically have like a single. You know, if you're a level three engineer in San Francisco, you're going to make the same as a level three engineer in, you know, rural Saskatchewan. Uh, the goal is to do that globally at some point. We have to figure out exactly, you know, how, because it's a, it's a much bigger data problem. But, but, but ultimately, like, yeah, like if I'm, I'm not hiring you based on, like, where your muscles are and where you can do physical labor. I'm hiring you for, you know, what's in your brain. 
Yeah. Well, which should be up to you where you live. Again, work where you have the best job, live where you have the best life. If the best life is in a less expensive place, fantastic. Like, way yeah. to go. Why? I'm not going to pay you less. Uh, but yeah, of course, not every company is going to do that. But, you know, I, we are. Um, and, you know, and, and, and we're not trying to hire hundreds of thousands of people. We don't have big warehouses. We are all knowledge workers. So I don't need, you know, 100,000 employees. I just need over the next few years, like a couple of thousand of the best ones. So yeah, why, why, if I would be happy to hire them in San Francisco, why wouldn't I be happy to pay them the same amount regardless of where they are? Mm. I'm interested where that, um, that sort of thinking takes us because a lot of companies out there don't share that view. And so I'm wondering how they change their view. Is it they're forced to via regulation? Is it that they become better people and see the whole world doing it differently? I think time will tell on that one. One thing throughout this whole interview, sort of research before and TBD and that sort of thing, you're very much an optimist and a sort of make the world technology better person, I think. Um, I'm going to ask you to do something difficult. Um, imagine you and Mark Zuckerberg changed bodies. What would you fix in the first six months? I'm assuming you mean about his company. I don't really, uh, I yes, no, about what no cosmetic changes are allowed. Sorry, yeah. I see. Okay. Um, I, honestly, like I'm, I don't know, and I would suck at that job. And you know, I'm not Mark, and I, I know Mark a little bit, and you know, he's super smart in ways that I'm not. Um, I think you know, I think Facebook. I think Facebook is, has a fundamental problem, which I, I, I can diagnose, it's pretty plain to me, but I'm not sure exactly how to fix. And I think the problem is that uh, there's a total misalignment between how they make money and what their product does and, and what their alleged values are. In fact, I think if you look at like all of the big tech companies on a spectrum, like in terms of like alignment, like how closely is their money engine aligned to, their, to, what, to what their customers want, what their users want, you know, I think if you look at like Apple, like Apple, you know, giant company, all giant companies have, you know, some good and some evil giant company. But for the most part, their business is well aligned in the sense that like, what does Apple want? Apple wants to sell you an iPhone. They want you to, to get excited to buy a really expensive phone every year. Uh, what do Apple users want? Well, they want the expensive iPhone. Like Apple makes money when, when I decide to buy it. So like it's, it's aligned whether or not, you know, it's good for the world that people should want these expensive phones or not. Like we can debate, but there's, there's general alignment. Uh, if you look at like, you know, Microsoft, it's like, okay, it's generally aligned. Like they want people to buy their software. People want to buy their software. You know, generally it's aligned. Didn't used to be, it used to be all sorts of anti, you know, monopolistic stuff, but now it's pretty aligned. Yeah. If you look at Google, well, you know, it's getting more complicated, but the core business, the core money engine of Google is search ads mm -hmm. and search ads are actually pretty well aligned, right? Because like, if, if I search for something and you show me an ad for the thing I search for, that's like high intentionality, they're well-performing ads, there's a good chance that I wanted to see it. So in terms of an ad-driven business, like the Google search ads are actually pretty well aligned. And, and what you'll notice is like companies tend not to get into a whole lot of trouble that have well-aligned business models. Yeah. So like Google doesn't get into a lot of trouble because of search ads. I mean, a little bit, but not a lot. They get into massive trouble on like YouTube. Because that's totally unaligned. Because like, what does YouTube want? It wants to show you ads. It wants to amplify things. People watching YouTube don't want to see ads. So like Google starts getting wobbly there. And Facebook is like completely wobbly. Like what they want, the way they make money is like nothing to do with what Facebook users want. And that's uh, like, that sucks. And it's, it's difficult to see exactly how to fix it. So, you know, I guess what I would do is kind of say, this is where I think the problem is. I think we have we have a fundamentally misaligned business and we need to align it more. And 
you know, they've got many amazingly brilliant people at Facebook. So I guess the first thing I would do is, you know, ask people to <laughs> give me some suggestions for how to bring the core business into alignment. And if it means shrinking a little bit, so be it. You know, it's fine. It's not a, it's not a, you know, manifest destiny that companies have to, you know, always only get larger. Yeah, I, I think that that ultimately is a big sort of full stop for Silicon Valley. I think there is a slight crisis in that part of the world from the people that I've spoken to, whether it's leadership, whether it's funding and that sort of stuff. There just seems to be a, a rampant inequality that's always been there, but now it seems to be amplified. I don't know whether you agree with that or not, but for me, it feels like um, now is a time of mass change if you you've said that we're going through and the option to be a better business has never been easier for most people you can you can cut swathes of people if you want and people aren't batting an eyelid and that sort of stuff I, i'm i'm intrigued to see where a lot of these platforms go and i still think it's going to be in the wrong direction for a lot of them i must admit and yeah and you know and i said like you said i'm an optimist and and i actually i think i have a more nuanced view about that well first of all like personally i'm, I'm pretty mopey <laughs> like, i'm actually <laughs> like i'm not i'm not cheerful like if, you know my friends and people that know me like i'm not actually like a you know i am not a ray of sunshine uh because i think it's possible to be like personally mopey uh and uh you know and still quite optimistic on the big things and on the big things i i am an optimist but that doesn't come naturally to me because i am generally mopey um so what i try to do is is, is, I, is I try to have what i think of as rigorous optimism where like rigorous optimism for me the philosophy means that like yes the world can be better uh, and yes, like it will be better, but it's my job to make it so. And it'll only work if like I and other people rigorously work to it. So it's like, yeah, we can be optimists, which means we, we, we have a sense of agency. Like we can actually affect change, but like no one else is going to do it. Like we have to do it rigorously. We have to be, we have to, we have to envision the way in which the world can be made better. And then we have to make a plan for following that vision. And then we have to execute that plan. Mm. And that's like, that's rigorous optimism. And it, it like, it isn't, it isn't a personal orientation. It's not about being, you know, cheerful or not, because I'm generally not that cheerful person in life, but I kind of find it useful to, to think along this kind of rigorous optimistic lines when it comes to the impact of, you know, technology, which I agree has been, there's been a lot of problems with. Yeah. I, I think you. I, I agree. I think you have to be an optimist because anything else isn't really necessarily going to help. You can poke and poke and poke, but at the same time, if you're not helping to build or correct and that sort of stuff, then yeah, I think only more problems are probably probably likely and that sort of thing. Okay, final question. I know you have to go soon. Um, entrepreneurship. You've gone through pretty much every experience imaginable on that spectrum. What would be your best advice for a new entrepreneur and a more established entrepreneur that you've never given anyone before? advice that I've never given anyone before. Well, okay. Uh, so for a new entrepreneur, I think, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's gotta be meta, right? It's gotta be about, um, how do you deal with advice? <laughs> You're swimming in advice. Uh, no one, no one like, you know, no one, at least in the sort of tech entrepreneur, you know, Silicon Valley style or Silicon Valley, uh, style entrepreneurship is like, doesn't have enough advice. It's just like advice absolutely everywhere. Mm. So what do you do with it? How do you like, how do you navigate advice? You certainly don't have to follow it. You don't have to like do the thing that somebody tells you, but you shouldn't just ignore it either. You should like, you should take that as like a signal. That is the waters in which you swim and you should try to orient yourself, you know, appropriately kind of given all of the stuff you hear, all of the things that are contradictory, all of the things that are the same, the things you like, the things you don't like, the things that you're going to like intentionally decide to ignore, things that you're going to intentionally decide to misunderstand. Uh, and like, like have, have a philosophy, have a, 
a, a worldview, an, an, uh, an epistemology of, uh, of dealing with advice, uh, rather than just kind of being tossed around. Oh, this person, the last person I talked to said that I should raise money at this valuation, but now this person is saying that it, that's not important. Like, so what? Uh, so I think, I think, you know, come up, like, figure out how you're going to navigate the ocean of advice is, is a good thing. For more experienced people, I don't know, man, I guess what I'm realizing is like, uh, you know, the more I know, the less I know. And like, I'm cool with it. I'm like, I've developed, I have cultivated a taste for being wrong. I'm like, I like it. I like the feeling. I like the taste. Um, I think it's kind of healthy. It's healthy to be like, oh, well, I used to think this, but boy, it turns out I was wrong about that. Oh, that feels actually kind of nice. Like the yeah. sensation of, of changing your mind, like to try not to get too attached to, uh, to, um, you know, your own opinions to being right. Uh, I guess, this, I guess this goes back to Jessica's, um, you know, my co-founder's philosophy of, you know, strong opinions loosely held. Yeah. No, definitely. Phil, I know how busy you are. I'm honoured to count you amongst the TBD alumni. Thank you again for taking the time to be part of season one of Mouthwash. Um, finally, any, any final thoughts for you for advice for listeners in the next 24 months and how to navigate? Look, I think, I think the world is going through uh, the biggest period of change that's ever gone through in my life. I think, I think the next 24 months are going to be more consequential than, uh, than the dot-com era, than like the internet. I think like, there is such massive opportunity to, to, to rewire the entire world. Uh, left with some devices, it's going to wind up being less fair and shitty, mm -hmm. but you don't have to leave it to its own devices. Like a, a lot of us have, have agency to, to actually, uh, especially in a period of such intense change to figure out which direction we want to change the world. And the only failure is if you have the opportunity to do it and you, and you decide not to, like that's, that's failure. Everything else is, is fine. And this is the time to do it. So if you're on the fence about uh, doing something meaningful, I think the next 24 months is absolutely the time to do it. It may never come around again. Thanks for listening. Find out more about Mouthwash and the next season over at mouthwashshow.com. Mouthwash is recorded live on Twitter Spaces before becoming the podcast you've been listening to. Thanks to Ecology for planting a tree for every listener and Shell for sponsoring the show. Let me know if you're enjoying Mouthwash so far by leaving us a rating and a review. Remember to subscribe to Mouthwash wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes featuring activists, AI experts, Silicon Valley royalty, Pulitzer Prize winning journalists and a whole lot more besides. See you next time and remember, always start or end your day with a little mouthwash.